Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. And I'm Humberto Castaneda. I'm an NFL historian. All right. Today's episode is about the movie American Psycho. I recently came across a paper, a psychology paper, about American Psycho, and I remembered that it's Umberto's favorite movie. Yes. So I thought, let's make a podcast about this paper and about the movie and about all that. So let's get going. Why do you love the movie so much, Berto? Part of it is an emotional connection to when I saw it and how I saw it. But here's here's the deal. When I watched it, I didn't have a lot of context, except that I, I had read an article a few years back saying, hey, this thing called American Psycho is being made into a movie and it's got Leonardo DiCaprio in it because he was originally going to be the American Psycho. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. And then I kind of lost track of it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I uh, know Leonardo's out. This movie's coming out with this unknown guy, right? Christian Bale at the yeah, time. Yeah. I, he'd been in stuff, but it's like... Newsies. Whatever, right? And so I go with some friends and that's I don't have much context other than that. So I don't know really to what I hadn't read the book. I'd never, I didn't really know about Brad Easton Ellis at the time, I, even though I had seen Less Than Zero when I was a kid or whatever. But so I go and I watch it, and the whole movie I'm just mesmerized because a the style of the movie was fantastic, like just stylistically the 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 scenery, the the decor, the way they use the lighting, the way they use the angles, the shots, everything is so perfect. Second, the the sheer satire on the about the 80s and about the greed and about wall street and, and about all that stuff that's just fascinating and then and then coupled with this character that they create is so fascinating right i mean if you believe he's doing everything he's doing it's fascinating from the same way that you're fascinated about a ted bundy or something right and you're horrified but you're like jesus but if you don't believe or if you think wait there's something off here then there's this hilariousness to his awful atrocities right and and then his whole surrounding circle of friends, one is more clueless than the other. And it, it is also grotesque and so ugly, but also so hilarious. Uh, and so all that stuff, I just, it was like this roller coaster ride watching the movie. <clears throat> and I come out of the movie and half of the people I was with are like, that sucked. I don't even know what happened. Was he actually imagining it all? What happened? And then the other half of us were like, oh my God, that's the greatest thing we've ever seen. What distinguished the two groups? If you think that you were watching a horror movie, for example, if you think that's what you were doing, then you're going to be disappointed because um, it's not a typical horror movie by any means, right? And also, there are things that are confusing in it if you're trying to follow it linearly. Like, if you're trying to make the movie make sense linearly, it won't make sense. And if you're trying to resolve it all neatly, what did actually happen? It won't. It won't work. And and the main reason is because it's an unreliable narrator, the the person telling you the story is the psycho <laughs> so you already have someone that doesn't really know what's reality there were some of us that enjoyed the aesthetics and that premise we we were fine with the premise we're like oh, okay this crazy insane person who may just be a metaphor is telling us the story so i'm okay with it not making sense and i think other folks were like that didn't make sense <laughs> right because if you watch it literally it doesn't make much sense. No. And, and it's hard to tell And there's what. contradictory scenes, and right. then you're like, but wait, did he really? Wait, right. oh, the gun blew up a cop car? What the hell? You know, stuff like that. Right, right, right. Okay, so let's talk about scene by scene the movie a little bit. Not scene by scene, but let's, let's kind of just go through the movie. I, I, I watched it again last night to bone up because it had been a while. I've probably seen it about 
three or four times. I actually own the VHS tape. It's in it's in my bathroom. <laughs> have you seen it there? I haven't seen the VHS in your bathroom, but oh, maybe I have actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The box is there. You're right. It's not one of my favorite movies. I like it, but and and it's actually it comes from a different time when they made movies shorter. It's actually not that short. I think it's like maybe an hour and 40 minutes, but it feels really short because... It's, al- uh, it's snippy, yeah. Almost every movie now is just like a little too long. Unless, so, unless I love the movie, then it's too short. So, but, so the, the, the intro is already brilliant, right? Because you're sitting there, this plain white screen. You're like, what's happening? And all of a sudden, this blood, is it blood, starts dripping? And you're like, oh, that's... And it, it gracefully evolves into this raspberry jam or whatever they're putting on the super expensive fancy dessert right and it's these idiots talking about business and stuff it's it's a brilliant start i it just like front right off the bat i'm sold i remember one time you talking about how you wanted to model your life after him <laughs> yes. because there was this scene where he was talking about the facial mask yes. and the face scrub and he he was in his perfect uh, condo with perfect white everything and perfect <laughs> art and everything was clean and he went into his big bathroom and his big shower and he had all these perfect products and everything up and he was like perfectly fit and he did the perfect yes. and you i remember you saying like after that you started buying all these facial facial creams and stuff. i misunderstood <laughs> i was like okay if i buy all these fancy products for my skin i will look like christian bale at his fittest <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so basically, the movie starts off. They're at that fancy dinner, and uh, one of the women, one of the extras, I just noticed had those humongous bangs from the eighties. Oh yeah. Do you remember those bangs in the eighties? Well, sort of. Yes and no. So a yes because they were even in Colombia. But remember, I lived in Colombia, right? So a lot of the but you came to the states in ninety. Oh. So so but. Keep in mind, all our media and our influences and music yeah. was all coming from here. Yeah. So I saw the bangs both in TV stuff, in music, and the girls at, at our school, they copied all that stuff. So Man, the, the bangs in the 80s, I was, I, was, I, was prob- I was in high school, I was probably at bangs like ground zero because I think high school kids are the worst when it comes to doing the worst thing out there. Do you know what I mean? Well, let, let me ask you this question though. Are they still doing it? Cuz meaning Yeah. What 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 I mean is Absolutely. It like like if you see kids today, yeah. you know how the Justin Bieber hair or yeah. the, the sort of emo, f- you know, the 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 oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. uh what would you call it? Like long bangs where the guy is constantly flipping his hair. Yes. Uh, the high school students or maybe freshmen in high school are the I'm worst the worst culprits of that. Oh. Um, they always do the most ad- advanced version of whatever trend is out there. <laughs> and when I was in high school, I was in high school from 85 to 89, which I think was right smack dab in the middle of the big bangs thing. And the girls in, in my school, I remember just doing these outlandish bangs. But I think I liked it because I'm, I was right in the middle of that culture. And I, 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 I don't remember, I don't remember poo-pooing it. I, I, I never I thought it looked right. I always thought, I always thought it looked like an accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. And, and sometimes <laughs> I think they, I, you know, when you look at the models and the women of that time that were in the media, their bangs were big, but they had hairstylists to make right. it to make the whole ensemble on their sure. head look right. 
But when you're a girl and you have, you know, 15 minutes and you're all by yourself, you just have the bags. and you have like the the foamy mousse and your blow dryer and your mom saying, "We gotta go, we gotta go." Your bangs aren't gonna look quite right every nope. time. Yeah. Nope. So anyway, I well, just I had I had an embarrassing one too because in haircut, I mean, the. Uh, Oh, I did too. Oh my god, I I did. The, I had a flock of seagulls. Oh, I, I kind of would have gone that way. So I I was trying to grow my hair as long as I could in the front. You had a flock of seagulls just like a <laughs> few years ago. <laughs> That's true. I did do that. No, but I was so trying to grow, I, actually. grow it as long as I could. Right. So it like it was down to like below my chin on the front. Was it short on the sides and the back? No. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so I had a helmet. A helmet of hair, and then this long ass hair in the front. There's some pictures of me as 14 or 15 where I'm like, oh god. <laughs> right. So that's what I'm talking about. Like everyone, I would say most people, if they look at themselves at age 15, <laughs> they have the worst haircuts they've ever had in their yeah. life. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, I noticed that, and then I noticed they're playing New Order, which which oh. was which is great. You the know, the soundtrack is great, both both ironically and 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 literally. Yeah. 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 So this is when I noticed the first um, behavior from Patrick Bateman that indicates something is wrong with him. The bartender refuses to take his tickets for drinks, and, he, and she says, uh, we don't accept tickets anymore. We, this is a cash-only bar. And he, he gives her a credit card or cash or something. She turns around, and he says, I want to stab you to death and play with your blood. And he says this with a smile on his face. I want to stab you to death. And play with your blood. And but he, he doesn't even like, he's not, when you see him saying it, because you don't know if it's a movie effect, when you see him saying it, it is filmed in such a way to make you believe he is literally saying that directly to her with no no connotation other than, I mean it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she doesn't apparently hear him. That's right. Because it's a loud club that they're in. Perhaps, right. Or he was hallucinating saying yes, it. Or he, he wanted was, to say that. Yeah, it was only in his head, yeah. But the way he says it, he's not angry. He doesn't say it. With, he's not like losing his. He's not losing his temper and saying something out of anger. He's saying it in a cold, calculated way. Yes, that's what he literally wants to do. Or does he? Right? Because is it? Is he? Is he playing a part, or does he actually want to do that? Or what is it? It is. And in that moment, I do get the sense that that's like him drawing in his notebook. Right? Yeah. That's like that. He's but. There are moments throughout the movie where you see him obviously lose his cool about things that he shouldn't be losing his cool. About. Right, like someone else having a better car. <laughs> yeah. But it's implied that the other guys around him have the same reaction to it. Um, Maybe not as extreme, but yeah, they all care about how Absolutely, Paul yeah. Allen can get yeah. the reservation at, at uh, Dorcia and no one else can. By the way, right. in the book, it's Paul Owen, but in the movie, right. it's Paul Allen. Right. Were they trying to... No, they weren't, but, but I don't know why. That was such an arbitrary change. Were they, was there a famous Paul Owen they were trying to avoid? No. Because there's a famous Paul Allen. Yeah, I know, but, but I... I I remember an interview with the lady who directed it or whatever, and that was not an intentional thing. Because this was the 80s anyways. Right. There was zero connection to the Microsoft Paul Allen. Have you ever met Paul Allen? No, I've never met him. Oh, ever met Bill Gates? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, the first time I met him, it was like walking by. The second time I met him was in a product review, Uh and I had to say my piece. Uh And then the, the last time I met him was in another... Not another review type meeting where he was kind of yelling at someone. Is he nerdy? 
He's not very nerdy in those meetings because he's they're ruthless. Well, isn't the story of Microsoft that Bill Gates was a like a ruthless businessman? Like he was constantly. He, he was very driven. Very, very. Uh, he saw the opportunities that other people, I guess, were not seeing. Yeah, like didn't he, was, he buy the first version of Windows from some other guy for like as like five eighty grand or something? Eighty grand, yep. and all the while knew he was going to make millions off or of 10 it. Ten grand, and he licensed it for eighty or something. Yeah, I mean, yes, he was very smart, very savvy. Uh, and he understood the technology and where it was going to go. And he was very good at wheeling and dealing and getting his way. Yeah. Every day, and, and people al- followed him. Almost every day, I either walk by or drive by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is just like a couple blocks from here. And they have this really interesting looking visitor center in the bottom floor of the foundation, right? The foundation? Bill and Melinda yeah. Gates the Foundation. And I've never been inside. I've lived here for almost four years or something. I've never been inside. It looks really interesting anyway. And they have a really bizarre, constantly playing TV screen out front that has all these weird art things going on. I have no idea what they're doing. Okay. So then, so that's the first time that you see him uh, where he obviously has a lot of aggression towards people that bother him even in the slightest way. He goes into his perfect condo, and he start. He, he, there's a voiceover of him talking, and he's saying, "There is no real me. I have, you know, I don't yes. have. I, I take the and it, there's this ironic or I don't know symbolic scene where he's taking this the mask, this yeah. mask off his face, which is that that beauty mask that yes. you put on, and it's see through, and he's taking off a mask that looks just like him." And it reveals him. Do you know what I mean? It's oh yeah, like, the, the the mask almost had more care, more more personality than the, than what's being revealed underneath. Right, right. Uh, because his his expression is so dour, so yeah. so like, and and you get this again when he's getting the the spa treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember? Yeah. And you remember he's like, uh, he, what does he say? He's like, uh, he's he's not repulsed. He's like. He, he has such disdain yeah. for the person helping him or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> and then they break into Walking on Sunshine, yes. uh, which, was, which was a huge song when I was in high school, by the way. And he's wearing the big headphones. <laughs> right. The so Walkman. That, that was another thing. So he has a Walkman and those typical Walkman headphones the with, the, with ones, the little yeah. fuzzy ones. And I can't tell you how that just brings me back to the 80s because I, I, I actually had a boombox. It was a dual cassette boombox. Wow. So you could dub tapes, sure. right? And one of the cassette decks was a detachable Walkman. What? Yeah. So one of the cassette decks, you could actually press That's this cool. button and, it, and this whole Transformer. Th- Transformer thing came out. And then I had this, this like gold Walkman I could walk around. And I remember listening to the Beatles and Husker Du wow. and In Excess and Devo. And That's cool. Who else? So I'm going to talk about a lot of things from the 80s, actually, because that, sure. that was a big part of it for me. He goes into his office and there's no computer on his desk. <laughs> I know. A what? <laughs> there, was, there was just a phone, I think. And I just thought, oh, that's yeah, that's right. Back in the day, normal right. people didn't have computers. Right. And so I thought that was interesting. And, and so you think, what does he do? You still don't really know. What does he do? He's a and, vice president. Mergers and acquisitions. For murders and executions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just says all these really alarming things that no one reacts to, right? Yes. And, and you know, he's very concerned about reservations, and his girlfriend is asked, who pl- who's get played by uh, Legally Blonde. 
Uh, yes. What is her name? He says, because I want to fit in, he says. He's not listening to her. He's got his headphones on again, right? Yeah. And, and they're planning the wedding, right? She says something like, "Why? I don't even know why you go to work. Like, you don't even have to work or something like that because your dad owns the company or something, right? And he's like, because I want to fit in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and she just, she doesn't even respond to that. She, they both seem oblivious it, to it, what each other and, is and saying. And that's so, that moment is so interesting, right? Because there's this layer of him. Again, I don't know if it's a metaphor or if it's him be- imagining. I don't know what layer it is, but there's a layer of him that's aware of what a, parody of reality he is right because that moment when he says i want to fit in is so self-aware right right that's like he he had 10 years of therapy or something right but then you don't know is is he aware of that awareness right <laughs> so in my business we would say he has an observing ego a strong observing ego which is not very consistent with what he also which with with his lifestyle and what he does right, right. so it's like what's wrong with him if he knows that because most people, if they're desperately trying to fit in, they wouldn't say because I'm trying to fit in. Right. They would say something like, "What do you mean? I have to go work. I'm super important." Right. Or, "Well, that's just what I like to do. This right. is what I feel like doing." Uh, they wouldn't say because they wanted to fit in. Because as soon as they said that, they would go, "Oh, that sounds a little shallow," or "It's supposed to be shallow," or something like that. Anyway, um, so I started thinking. I was trying to figure out what diagnosis to give him if, if, if he... Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon, good job. That's not, that's not the diagnosis I would give her, him. Uh, I thought, is he narcissistic, okay? Because he definitely has narcissistic rage when he's challenged. Uh, he definitely needs to be seen a certain way. He needs to have the, the, he needs to be seated at the good table. He's walking into the restaurant. There's a voiceover and he says, I thought I wasn't going to get a no, good table. I'm on the verge of tears as we arrive at a spa. Oh my God. For I am certain we will not have a table, but we do. And relief washes me over me in an awesome way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's as if you've watched the movie a million times. <laughs> And, and it's funny because the, the book, there's a lot of moments in the movie that are very close to the moment in the book, but the wording in the book is, is a little different than that, and it's more awkward. So like, they cleaned it up a bit for the movie, and I like the movie version better. So that uh, experience of his is narcissistic. He is very, very concerned about being seated at a good table and how it looks to other people. And when he discovers that he is going to be sitting at a good table, he is extremely relieved. That's this. It's his primary focus in that moment. He's not. He's not focused on having a good meal. <laughs> I'm on the verge of tears, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I don't. I don't think he's being ironic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He also seems fearless, like he's above it all. He doesn't. He he can challenge other people in ways that even narcissistic people wouldn't be able to do. Because his fears have all to do with propriety and being being misinterpreted or being seen a certain way, but not with things that most of the rest of us would be afraid of, like hurting know, someone's feelings, hurting someone's feelings, or challenging authority, or you know, something like that. So, what's the theory about the sheets with the blood on it that he's trying to get dry? <laughs> cran- it's cran apple. <laughs> yeah, like it, what's the oh, God. what's the what's the theory behind that? So, meaning, like, if he didn't really kill these people, why does he have those sheets? Yeah. Because um, at that point in the movie, he hasn't killed anybody yet. I don't think. Uh, no, he did. Oh. Uh, remember, that's, those, are the, those are the sheets after the girl he meets on the street. I don't think so. I think it's before that. It's before that. It's definitely no, 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 before rem- that. Rem- no. Oh, after the girl he when meets. When he's walking down the street oh. and he's like, hi. And she's like, 
hello. Oh. And then they and then they walk across the street together. And the next day, he's got these bloody oh, sheets. Okay. And um, I think that's her head we see later, or oh. her hair, or something like that. I see. Okay. So, anyways, that it's, makes sense. It's the implication is he killed that lady. Right, right, right. So then he says to the Asian woman who works at the dry cleaners, who is not being very cooperative with him, he says, "If you don't shut your mouth, I will kill you." Right. And uh, she reacts to it. <gasps> oh, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah something but, in Chinese. But is it, and again, it's weird, right? Like, me, he might have actually said that. Yeah. Did she understand that? Is she reacting to something else? Is right, he, you right. Know, all these things. Yeah. So um, he's watching porn casually. Like, porn is <laughs> constantly on. Yeah, that's a great scene, right? Because you, you hear the action, you think, oh, he's getting late. And, and then it starts panning. You're like, oh. No, he's watching something. And he's doing sit-ups. And yeah. most of the noise is actually coming from him doing the sit-ups. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's having an affair. He's very cold and calculating. He doesn't seem to care about anybody. He is deciding on where to go to eat, and he's looking at the Zagat Guide to figure out which, which is the best restaurant. Uh, everything is about image. Everything, everything about image. Yeah. Oh, I, like, for example, I love the... So the Dorsia theme in the movie is great. Because first of all, we never see Dorsia, right? Oh, I guess we don't. No, That's we funny. never do. And we don't see the outside of Dorsia? We don't see anything. Oh. And all we know is that it's like the in-club or the in-restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so funny because remember with his secretary, where he's – you would think he wouldn't care so much what she thinks. She certainly doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah, he even cares about how she sees it. Right. Because he's built this – this image of himself right. to everybody that can't be lived up to, of course. And, and that part's really tragic because you kind of get the sense that she's actually a nice person. Right. She's the only, well, except for the detective Kimball or whatever, but even he's a little odd. Like, she's almost like the only normal, rational person in this whole mess. Yeah. Except for the fact that she's into him. You would think she would see past all that bullshit. Right. But she doesn't. Well, she does eventually at the end. She's looking well, at... Well, yes. That's, oh, that's a whole other level of fucked up. Like, it would fuck you up in the head to find that book. Right. <laughs> but she's, at the end, dis- she at the end discovers his planner, and in it has all these horrible drawings. I mean, horrible, like... Yeah, of, of torturing women yeah. and this sort of thing. Insane, insane, insane and stuff. And they show her crying. And the way I interpret it is, is th- that she is the one who deserves to really see him for who he really is because she's true of heart. And she's crying because she's she represents goodness and compassion and or at least normalness or normalness. Something. Yeah. But she seems even extra sensitive <laughs> yeah, or something. That's right. And she reacts to this horror by crying and being sad about what right. pa- Patrick ba- Bateman is because she looked up to him so much. Yeah, she had like this puppy crush on him, but but a lot of it was like this admiration. Well, she was pure goodness, and she thought that she he was. Ex- she accepts right. everything, and she kind of assumed that he actually was competent somehow. Yeah, right. Because she didn't. She, she covered for him a little bit, but she must have assumed the impression I got was that she thought, "Oh, this guy must be really something," you know? Right. Right. Um, right. Well, he was vice president after right. All. Um, and we don't see him do one thing the whole time right. that has anything to do with anything. Right. So um, so now I think we might do well by introducing the theme of 
80s materialism and capitalism, right? So he works for uh, mergers and acquisitions, which was big in the 80s. Price and price. It's all about image and the suits and the nice restaurants, which was definitely a part of the 80s. Uh, and one of the things he does is he kills a homeless man who doesn't have a job and he humiliates him. Do you know how bad you, you reek out? I mean, that, that scene was a job, Al, right. That was one of the hardest ones. You have a negative attitude. So, (laughs) you know, it's all about that sentiment that was in the eighties, you know, when you had all this excess and all, and it, there was all this like America, we're great. We have all this money and we're prosperous and da, 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 da. And it's like, well, what about those who don't have a lot? It's their fault. Clearly it's their fault. They have a negative attitude. They're not living the American dream because they're not doing anything about it. But of course he's African American and, and the implication is that he's experienced racism and is down on his luck because of that. Uh, and any, you know, and I looked at it like, even if, even if he had it, let's say he was just a drunkard, right? Whatever. Like up until that point, there is this part of him that almost really wants to kind of gives the guy some, uh, how do you, tough love, right? Like, come on, man, you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps. But the whole time, he's leading towards pulling out the knife and killing him. And it's it's just so doubly grotesque, right? The Like, I can't stand you. You know, like, you and I have nothing in common. Right. And then he just kills. And then and then he kills the dog. And so it's, it's not just that he is a materialistic pig or whatever. He actually can't even stand that there's another reality. Right. So one analysis that I would have for him that I didn't see in any of the literature that I saw written about the movie is that he is, through projective identification, trying to destroy parts of himself but that he doesn't like, that are in conflict inside of him. Sure. It would be as his father works for, is, is the president or something yeah. of that company, right? Yeah. So let's, let's assume that his father is, is just as capitalist and just as narcissistic and, and maybe not very uh, warm as a father. Right. And we would certainly imagine that Patrick Bateman grew up with not-so-great parents. Uh, his brother in Sean in Rules of Attraction Rules of Attraction had similar traits. Not as bad, obviously. Right. He's not a psychopath, but he's a sociopath. <laughs> and and he had a, he had sensitivities. Yeah. You know, he had he had pain, and yeah. you know, he wanted anyway. So Patrick Bateman Bateman obviously had some issues growing up, and he might have internalized this experience of being neglected of being said he's not good enough of being of being humiliated for not being perfect not being a good enough son and so you and he internalized this representation of this relationship where he has himself as being humiliated himself as being not good enough and this other person saying i'm perfect and you're not yeah and right. i can do anything and i'm rich and you're you're going to amount to nothing you're nobody and so he you inter- can see the dad having abused him not with a knife but almost that extremely with capitalism. He was abused by capitalism. So he internalizes this. Now he has this internal representation of himself and the other, but the other is now a part of himself. That's, right. that's, the, that's the, the mechanism that in which we internalize our experiences growing up and the characteristics of our caregivers. And so in this interaction with the homeless person, why does he even seek out this homeless person? I mean, he could have easily just walked past. He probably walks past homeless people all the time. He's in New York, right? Yeah. And well, so, and, and, and that's what I was saying. Like, 
I got the impression that there was uh, there's because there's these slivers of him that are all competing. It's almost like he's schizophrenic or something, right? Because there's this part of him that I really thought. You mean you mean multiple personalities? Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's this people. Just so you know, people often use schizophrenic in the non-clinical world. You non you lay people tend to use schizophrenic to mean multiple personalities. Well, you know what's funny? Okay, let me tell you my brief anecdote about this. Okay, I never used to do that. I only started doing that because a few years ago, someone told me that schizophrenia was essentially multiple personality. It's not true at all. I always used to say multiple personality, and then someone corrected me. It's actually technically dissociative identity disorder. Well, whatever the fuck. But schizophrenia, <laughs> schizophrenia is a whole other thing. All right, listen. You're driving me schizophrenic right now. But, but basically, what I'm thinking is there are there is a part of him that believed his own bullshit in that early moment of that interaction where he's like, I'm going to help this man. You know what I mean? But it quickly is overtaken by probably what you're saying. I kind of almost see it now that you're mentioning the father relationship and stuff. You can imagine his father physically and verbally abusing him as a kid. Like, you were never going to amount to it. You disgust me, all these things. And that takes over from what might have started from a quote-unquote good intention place. Right. Well, in order to engage someone in projective identification, you have to engage them somehow. Yeah. If he just walked up to the homeless guy and said, you're nobody, what's wrong with you? The, the homeless guy would have rejected him somehow. Right. But he has to suck, people have to suck people in. So the idea is, is that when you have this internal representation at war with each other, so in inside his psyche is this is this abused self and this other that is abusing him, but but he possesses those qualities of being able to abuse other people and those motivations, and so this inner war is going on. And he starts saying, "I, I can help you." Right. So he comes up. He so one he has to find someone to project right. onto one of those sides so right. he can embody the other side, and it's sort of arbitrary to, depending on the situation which side he, he'll he'll identify with, but he tends to project the right. abused other onto other people. So he finds this homeless person and humiliates, you know, get, first sucks him into the protective identity. Because he's like, even seeming like, I can help you. And the guy's like, you're so kind, mister. You're so kind. Right. So now he's the the needy, the helpless person, right. the person who is desperate for acceptance and love. And so now he can project that child right. of himself onto the homeless person and then proceed to say, oh, I can help you the way someone might in, in that position, and then proceed to abuse him and kill him. But there's a flipping moment where he goes like, you and I, we've got nothing in common. And it, it's, and I feel right. like in that moment where that he, he fully detaches emotionally from him being a human. Right. He's like, all right. You're not even a human being. Yeah. And that statement of we have nothing in common is his very overt attempt to distance himself from a part of himself, which is that homeless person, right. which is desperate, which feels alone, which feels rejected, which feels right. poor and destitute. There's a part of him that feels that way. So he projects this other this side on the homeless person and then proceeds to actually kill that person in an attempt to kill that part of himself. Right. And it feels good. It's it feels because it's a fantasy that he actually is killing that part of himself. It feels good to him, but ultimately does doesn't actually kill that part of himself, and he needs to go on killing. So not only does, he doesn't find other homeless people in the movie, he finds primarily women, right, which represent in a misogynist culture the weak part of right. the human race, right? And he even finds like the the even weaker 
technically is just like the the lonely, nice looking, like nice person looking hooker. Yeah, all by herself. You know. Yeah, he doesn't find the tough girl. He <laughs> finds the mousy one. Yes, and he continues to through projective ident- identification try to rid himself of the female side of him, of the uh, accepting side of him, of the of the side of him that wants to give to, to someone else. And I got the sense that he had some some homosexual struggle inside of himself because for two reasons. One, like he hates these women so much for some reason, right? But two, his reaction to Lewis because it's so extreme, right? Now, you can L- say- Lewis was a gay man. Yeah, Lewis is definitely gay and he has- But he's, a, in, but he's in the closet, which is also he, a very 80s- But it's very common for, you know, for them to be in the closet in the 80s. Sure. But whatever the case may be, he is in love with Patrick. He loves the guy. Yeah. And he, at one point, thinks he gets that message, right? Which is not what Patrick's at least consciously trying to do. But he is so disgusted, so extremely repulsed and bothered by the moment that I couldn't help but wonder, is he closeting something there? Like, you know, right. is he a little bit... And I, mean, it, I mean, going off the theory that he was possibly at least somewhat homosexual... Right. And again, through projective identification, since homosexuality represents all things weak, all right. things horrible to him and his father and society at the time, he rids himself of that part of himself by projecting it onto Lewis and killing him. Doesn't he kill him too? Um, he doesn't kill Lewis. He tries to kill him. He goes starts strangling him, and you know he grabs him with the gloves. He's like Patrick. What do you you know? But then, but then he he starts kissing the glove because he thinks oh, he's yeah. coming onto him because he can't really do go through with it. Yeah. And then he that's when he washes the gloves off and leaves. <laughs> yeah. And he's so terrified of that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so scared of that, and he can't actually go through and, and kill him. So other things in the eighties, they played Huey Lewis, the Four album, which they they played Hip to Be Square, right? Yes, which is probably the point where I thought that Huey Lewis actually became a bad band. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't say that very well. That's the point where Huey Lewis... Uh, in, in Jump the shark. <laughs> jump, jump the shark. You know, because their previous album uh, was Sports. Sport, Sports was, was good, and their album before that I thought was pretty good. Uh, but Hip to be Square was... <laughs> Hip to be Square! Such a bad song. And I, I remember that song was huge because it was their next hit after their humongous right. album. And I remember the video, and uh, I just remember thinking, like, I'm supposed to like this. It's sort of like when you went to see yeah. Phantom Menace. Anyway. <laughs> oh, right, right. And then so you, like, convinced yourself, like, I, yeah. I like this. Yeah. And then uh, that other song, uh, <laughs> We're So Happy to Be Stuck With You. Oh, I never did like that one. <sighs> I love Power of Love, though, because of Back to the Future. Yeah. Well, that was sports. sports was and so. But that moment in the movie is fantastic because, in fact, he is talking about sports, but then he plays. Yeah. And this is his next, you know. He did the same thing with Phil Collins. He said that I believe that Invisible Touch is Genesis, the Genesis masterpiece, and I'm just like, that's again when Genesis became a sellout band, just trying to make but crappy did, yeah. pop music. But that was kind of like his his shtick, and I don't think it was on. Per- like I think he he misinterpreted things, yeah, because. What, when he started appreciating it is when, in fact, it becomes fakely emotional. Oh. You know what I'm saying? So it's like because he when doesn't became, have he, real emotion. When things became plastic, 
but he's also like, oh, very, but very, that makes sense, but very popular. Right. That's when he started liking he's like, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. 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 But, but he clearly has the capacity for critiquing and all these. Kind no, of he things. doesn't. He's quoting newspapers. No, no. Uh, um, I'm th- thinking more about like, uh, well, actually you, you may be right in general. Cause I'm thinking, especially in the book, he talks about all the fashion and the brands and the things and the stuff. I mean, he never says anything you think along not, those lines. None of his original thoughts. Then No, I think he's okay. quoting right out of a, a, a critique. Oh, that's, that is, I could see it because he says, well, New York, uh, uh, New York Matinee calls it a playful little dish. Who that? talks like that? <laughs> no one talks like that. Okay, so that's actually a good observation. Because I actually, the way I looked at it was that I felt like he's got the capacity to talk about it, but his conclusions are all wrong. All of but his I think opinion- you're right. All yeah. of his opinions are, are from other people. Right, and you notice that that one woman who's sort of the posh, drunk girl, right. he he... He's he's listening to Whitney Houston, the greatest love of all, and he's going on one of those rants where he's right. just basically quoting a critic, right. and she starts laughing at him. She says, "You actually listen to Wh- you have Whitney Houston CDs in your apartment? Is that what you're more than one? <laughs> is that what you're saying? She's like you like Whitney Houston? Yeah, no, but but then it's it's interesting. He he can't impress her the same way he can impress like the. Uh, uh, like he can freak right. a lot of people out because she actually is in his social class, yeah, and isn't impressed the way everyone else is, and, and she sees through the BS a bit because. But she also wants to please him. You can tell she lets a lot go. Well, she likes him. Yeah, uh, she. He's an attractive guy, so she, you know, she. But I don't get. But the I sense think. It, that, but I think it's also that misogyny in that culture, mm. because he at some. I mean, he's not being. He's the whole thing about the movie is he's never charming. He's never interesting. He's never nice to people. Well, like the the heartbreaking moment for me. Well, one of the many. Remember, so they're with the supermodels in the club, yeah. right? Or they're not supermodels. Right. The models, right? And then he's being a dick. Yeah. Right. They leave the club. What does she say? There's something sweet about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like. Oh, yeah, right? That's so heartbreaking. Right, because, again, in the 80s and in our culture today, but particularly in the past, in our sexist culture, you would have people forgiving men for... What is my cat doing? I don't know. There's some black pellet on the floor. Oh, Can you pick up that piece of paper? Because I think it's, yes. I think it's a, an attractive nuisance. Um, yes, and, and so even, even in his... Like totally uninteresting. He's a total bore, right? And he and they go but outside because he's an attractive like, white male with a lot of yeah. power and money. There's something sweet about you. He gets everything. Right. It, it's all you need is is those right. trappings. You don't need to be a good person. Right. You don't need to be interesting. You get everything in the world if you were born in the right place right. and wear the right suits. Um, another thing I noticed about the 80s was answering machines. Do you remember an- with, <laughs> with actual tapes Hi, in them? It's Paul. I'm yeah. gonna be out of town for a few days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then Lady in Red, the song comes oh, on. Yes, God, that was such yes. a big song. Uh, big cell phones. Um, <laughs> another thing from the 80s was suspenders. I actually had suspenders Did in, the, you? in the 80s, yeah. I must have too. Yeah. Um, Phil Collins again. Uh, oh, another thing I noticed from the 80s was a he, in his stereo in his condo, he has a big uh, equalizer component with, with, <laughs> with separate left and right channels. <laughs> oh, right. I mean, why in the world would you ever want to raise uh, one particular band? Because you're that discerning. <laughs> just just in the left channel. Hey, man, you got to equalize your room just right. I mean, do you remember those? Those were ubiquitous sure, sure. in eight, late 80s stereos was to have a 20-band a left and right EQ well, component. we didn't have a video hi-fi yet. 
So I think the big, the equivalent of like the HGTVs and the stuff was all the hi-fi audio stuff. Right, which was complete BS. My dad had one of those. And every time I would go home, I would find every single band maxed out all the, all the way at the top. Just like a volume. I know. And I was like, Dad, you realize that if you just put it all at zero and turn up the volume, it'll, you know what I mean? And, and I'd always go, Dad, stop that. And I'd, I'd put it all down. And I'd say, like, that's not, why have this here? And, and, I, and he'd go like, oh, okay, okay. Well, thanks, thanks, Chris. It's funny because he's an engineer. No, he's not. He's a, he's a graphic artist. Oh, I'm sorry. But he works at Boeing. So but he's I a graphic he was, artist. Okay. Yeah. So then I so then I leave and then I come back and they'd all be pegged at ten again, and uh, Dad, come on. So anyway, um, that's hilarious. So how many of these ultra sensitive multi band left and right EQ components were just being wasted on people? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, they probably weren't that sensitive, <laughs> right? Well, okay. So so here's a question: In the book, have you read the book? No. So in the book, it's a little more explicit that. Basically, nothing really happened other than in his head. But in the movie, I feel like there's more room for interpretation. Because, so remember when he goes back to the apartment and it's empty and there, and the lady, the real estate lady is there? When she tells him to go and never come back, I feel an implication there. Like, it could just be that she's afraid of who is this weirdo. Here's the other implication I got. The real estate folks, they're so they're so depraved that they don't care that there was a murder there. Uh, they just care that people don't find out. Right, because it was recently painted. That's right. Yeah. So I, I was like, wait, so did something happen there? Oh. And, and, and in the book, there's more uh, detail about... So he does do a lot of weird shit with animals too and stuff like that. So there is the possibility that he does do some crazy whacked out stuff, but maybe didn't murder all those people. Right. Because Paul Allen, for example theoretically still alive right right but we never really get confirmation of that that's the, true but the, then the cops were never really after him yeah but are the cops 80s cops who don't care about anything <laughs> like everyone else right. so but then you know he shows up at the club everything's fine everyone's like oh jesus that was you that was hilarious right yeah he's like what are you talking about yeah yeah and then he calls uh the secretary what's her name um uh chloe Savannah. yeah yeah but what's the in the in the i can't believe i forgot her Character's April name. April or something? No. And he calls and he's like, ah. He's like, why? He's like trying to trying to tell her like everything's wrong or whatever, right? It's yeah. like, why are you so worried? <laughs> and yeah. he's just like flipping out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, so that, so all of that is interesting psychologically and diagnostically. If he was hallucinating everything, he definitely was becoming more and more symptomatic as the movie progressed. Right. And he becomes more confused and, and his emotions start becoming more erratic. Honestly, to, to cut to the chase, I don't think he fits any diagnosis. There's a possibility of a delusional disorder that's developing, some psychotic disorder, I mean, like schizophrenia or bipolar. He definitely could have been experiencing a manic episode, but it's unclear because a lot of the things that he's doing don't fit nicely into a diagnostic category. In the paper that I sent you and that you know we can talk about, they talked about him maybe having schizotypal or schizotypal personality disorder. And I, I've treated people with that disorder and he doesn't fit that description at all to me. Hmm. They also thought he might be borderline. And again, no, it just doesn't, doesn't, but it's, it's really hard because he's, he's an amalgamation, right? A a fictional narrative amalgamation. Right. And it's, 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 it'd be very hard to find some, 
someone like this yeah. that that exhibited that all extreme because yeah. he was almost really a metaphor for for it all right know? i mean before any of the murders i would have said maybe narcissistic maybe a trauma survivor right uh or an attachment problem because he definitely wasn't exhibiting secure attachment behaviors with other people. Didn't seem to care or think he cared. But then when he starts to hallucinate and starts to kill all these people, then I started not knowing what category to put him in. Yeah. The, uh, there's that moment, which I really love. It's towards the end. He gets back to the bar and there's all the, his friends, like nothing's ever happened. Nothing. And he sits down and he's sweating profusely. And then, and then Bryce is back right or price whatever right and they're looking at reagan on the tv he's like god how can he sit there and lie like that right and he, he how can he be just so so cool about it and then he's lying about the iran contra yeah yeah and then uh and then and then bateman goes into his monologue and he's like you know he talks about like this confession has meant nothing mm-hmm. and that's the end of the movie yeah. and i i think it's just so great cuz there's no cathar- he's like there's no catharsis and that was kind of the most maybe real moment for me in the movie because if you if you actually if you actually take it as no he's not really killing people he's just an egotistical prick from Wall Street with too much money too much free time and he is somewhat deranged because no one draws stuff like that in their book daily without a little bit of messed up in the head right and he's clearly antisocial personality disorder to a certain extent because he doesn't give a shit about anything right, right. that should be mentioned antisocial psychopath right. definitely a candidate for right. that but then at the end you get that sense of like he actually was trying to kind of kill himself in the process, like commit himself, right? By doing the 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 full out confession, right? Because he leaves this long message, and I killed him, and I did, I killed hookers, right? And I even ate a little bit. So that's <laughs> why I think he suffered from a very difficult childhood, and and right. and that's the primary reason, right, for all of the behavior behavior, because he seemed to be very sad and very upset about being caught, and he didn't. And have he's finally to, turning it in. Yeah, and he's and he's, I, you know, he's he's expressing emotion. He's right. crying, and he. He feel he almost feels he really wants someone to That's know. That's right. And then there's that super vulnerable moment where he's doing all that, but then by the end he goes back to this cold self and he's like this confession has meant nothing. Because the person <laughs> the person he confessed to said no you didn't or the, yeah, the, or, the the society around him doesn't even care. <laughs> they don't want they don't want to hear it. Yes. Yeah. So, what are your theories as to why people like this movie? Because on its surface it doesn't seem like a likable movie, right? You have a very unlikable person who is doing a lot of unlikable things, a lot of horrible things to people. The the good person in the film gets crapped on all the time. Right. It, there's nothing warm-hearted about the movie at all. Right. So nothing good happens. Why do people like a movie like this? <laughs> I mean, so I, there must be different segments. Some of it might be uh, fans of Brad Easton Ellis, right? So there's a portion of folks there. But why would there be fans um, of this of this author? I, I've heard the book is even worse. The book is, uh, but you know, let's say let's say that you liked Less Than Zero and you read his book and you had read uh, Glamorama or something like. Let's say you were reading his books, right? You like his writing style. No. So that's one class. I'm just saying that's one class of people that would Most like people have not read the book. I mean, I would say of the vast majority of the fans of the movie. That could be. They haven't read the book. Um, okay. Well, then I guess I go back to why me and my friends liked it. 
because we hadn't read the book. Uh, and it was stylistically, it was very well done. It, it just really, uh, uh, really deliberate. Yeah. Like every scene was really, you didn't have fat in there. Yeah. You know, and uh, literally. And then also, the characters are so entertaining to watch. It, the, the comedy of errors around it, the, the, the sheer absurdity of it all is like watching a, a train wreck, right? So that's uh, very entertaining to watch as well. Watching a train and wreck. And then there is the parody of, or the satire about the 80s, right? And right. if you grew up in the 80s, right. that's very entertaining I can as comment well. to that because when, I, when did the movie come out? 2000. 2000? 2001, maybe? 2000. I mean, when I watched it, the 80s were just 10 years, 12 right. years before that. Right. But when I watched it, I remember it was one of the first movies or depictions of the 80s that I had seen. Because it takes <laughs> a while for enough time to pass for a depiction to actually seem different, right? To have retrospect, yeah. Right. And I remember watching that movie and just being transported, even though it was only 10 years <laughs> yeah. earlier, right. and thinking, oh my God, they really nailed the 80s right. in so many different ways. I mean, not the 80s is the way all of us experienced no. it, but definite parts of it. It was late it. 80s anyways, but yeah. Yeah. Um, like Susudio when yeah. they played Susudio that song I don't think has been played since the 80s <laughs> you know no one listens to that song no one says I want to listen to Susudio <laughs> but in 1988 or whatever when that song was popular it was humongously <laughs> popular and so to hear that song again it just I just think oh that's right that song was huge so yeah they, I think it is sort of entertaining to watch a period piece <laughs> That, and then that, they they had good actors. I mean, they they freaking had what's his name as the detective, uh, whom I love. Yeah, uh, the Green Goblin, uh, yeah. uh, Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Yeah, and even his buddies, all of them are famous now. Yeah, they're all good, and uh, many of them have on, got moved on to do great things. And, right. Well, uh, here here are my ideas as to why people love the movie, and you tell me if this is true. Other ideas that you didn't mention. I think you get a vicarious thrill from being able to punish the yuppies because a lot of the yuppies are being punished by him and he's punishing himself. And I think a lot of people want the yuppies to be punished. I mean, one thing that I think people that didn't grow up in the 80s might not know is that everyone hated the yuppies. They hated yeah. this class of people. The young, what would they call it? Young up-and-comer, young, I don't know. the what, Young Nurse Boys Club. And yeah, stuff something like that. that. It was like these rich people who had it all, and they had all the nice things, and most of us did not have that. <laughs> right. And so we hated these people. I don't know if it's that they're being punished. They're certainly being made fun of. Yeah. But, yeah, so there's that. And then there's... The other vicarious thrill of being able to kill people that annoy us or just being able to kill people. And before watching this movie, if you would have, if you would have asked me, well, what's your position on everyone having a desire to kill people? I would have said, eh, yeah, I know. Freud had a theory about death, you know, the death wish. And there's all these people who have all these theories about and in, you know, the id wanting to destroy people. And I don't know. I, I, I'd like to think that people are good. So my pendulum kind of swings back and forth. Well, after watching this movie and knowing that it's a very popular movie, the pendulum has swung all the way over to the side where I believe that we, or at least a lot of us, have a innate id desire to destroy other people, it, this wish to kill people that annoy us. 
and that we will suppress that because our superego and the society actually suppress it for good reasons. And that this movie gives us that thrill. It allows us to express that wish. What do you think? Um, I, I feel like it's a valid theory. It wasn't my experience, except in the preamble to a couple of moments. Like when he says, try getting a reservation at Dorsey now, you stupid bastard, or whatever. And then he slams. But that's the only, like that moment, that's that line, because it's funny. And the things surrounding the murders are presented either humorously or very stylistically so that's entertaining but for me it's a little weird because i get very empathetic when i'm watching murders and unless it's really like i'm watching us if it's a, if it's a slasher movie like i'm watching halloween then i don't really care because that's the point of the movie right well there's but, a part of you that cares obviously I yeah mean, that, but, that means you're human but there's also possibly a part of you that is subconsciously getting off on watching the killing of human beings maybe that's true yeah maybe i i remember it was more like the I, I was, I've always been, fa- we've talked about this before. I've been fascinated with serial killers, right? And, but it's a, it's a morbid fascination from the perspective of like, how can something go so wrong, you know? Well, let me ask you this. <laughs> do you, when you watch the movie, do you hope that he gets caught by the detective? Are you hoping that the detective will catch him? Uh, no. No. Right. I don't think anyone who likes the movie is hoping the detective will catch him. I think everyone hopes Patrick Bateman will get away with it. Yes. Why do we want that? Why do we want someone to get away with it? I think it's because we're projecting all of our uh, id wishes that we have to suppress onto Patrick Bateman. Um, one of the things that I read about that someone else is writing, which I agree with, is that Patrick Bateman represents pure id, this, this just unbridled id. He has sex. He is narcissistic. He looks at himself in the mirror. He flexes. He tells people to do things. He kills people that annoy him. He yells at people. He d- isn't nice to people. He gets everything he wants. He takes money. He takes everything. And one could say that we all have that selfish wish. We all have that wish to just let go and be selfish and to hurt people we want to hurt and to take what we want to take. And he represents that in a very distinct way, well-rounded way for an hour and 40 minutes. And I think that we as watchers get to vicariously have our wishes met through Patrick Bateman. I I will say that I experienced that more with Sean Bateman in the other movie, The Rules of Attraction. I certainly had that feeling. Actually, and even even with his friend who travels Europe and you see that quick montage of him going through Europe and partying like crazy. That's not that's not Sean. No, no, it's his friend. It's yeah, Sean's yeah, yeah. friend. Um, I had that moment of like, oh, that seems so cool. I want to do that, right? And even with Sean Bateman, I'm like, he's kind of neat. I mean, he's a jerk, but kind of want to live that life vicariously, right? Yeah. With Patrick Bateman, I honestly, you know what gets in the way for me is I, I, I feel like this incredible like sadness at the same time for how how tortured he tortures himself like how how much a- anguish over the little things and everything he's and his life seems so painful every day right you're having I, you're having empathy for right. for the id inside right. of you right. that wants these things and is torturing itself perhaps <laughs> <laughs> you, you twisted my meaning <laughs> um, uh, another another thing that's sort of a variation of what i'm saying I mean, well, let me ask you this before I say this. What's the gender distribution of those who love this movie, do you think? 
I must be largely male. Right. I would say 99% male. I don't know a single woman who would... I have met females that like it, but... Like it, but not love it, right? Oh, if they love it, they... They're not your average females. Okay. Well, I would say, why is that? You know. So one answer that I have is that it allows men to enact their hidden hatred of women. <laughs> I mean, not that all men hate women, but if you have a hatred of women, or have a, or have been hurt by women, or have been um, frustrated by women throughout one's life, and maybe have a inferiority problem or a power problem, it would perhaps satisfy a wish to destroy women because the movie definitely puts down women. Not only does he murder women, but he humiliates them. He manipulates them. He doesn't care. He breaks up with his fiance and says something like, well, Evelyn, I just don't really care about you. And he disregards them. He, he uses them as objects. If you had a problem with women, this would definitely satisfy some of your wishes to do bad things to women. What do you think? I feel like I have a friend that probably when they saw this movie had all those feelings and maybe laughed at those moments unironically because he felt, ah, that's right, bitch. Right. I, again, I, so and maybe this is why I love the movie so much. I feel like I actually get the character, the character's irony, and that's what I really enjoy about it. And so, like, in all those moments, whenever he's doing all those things, I, I do laugh and I do think it's hilarious with him naked with the chainsaw down the hallway, but in spite of what's actually happening, right? Like what's actually being implied. And like when he's when he's holding the 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 nail gun behind the head of his secretary, right? Like I find that scene humorous. Well but it's but if in its reality it's a monstrous situation, you know. If I might ask you some questions. I know you to be a very nice person and very nonviolent person. I can't, I can't think of a time where you would have ever physically hurt someone or physically intimidated or made someone to feel... Only when I was really drunk. Even then? The, uh, well, it's, it's been ugly. sexually. No, no, no. And, and, and there was an episode where I intimidated a homeless man when I was really drunk. Oh. Uh, well, and when you're really, really, really drunk, well... But when you're normal, you don't even hint at any kind of intimidation to people. I that's, don't think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, maybe people. But ironically, might be- like the, what I'm the episode I'm thinking of was actually a bit like the Patrick thing we were talking about because it started off with me trying to help this person and and started talking to, him, but he was um, he was not well. He was he was he had some disease mentally, so his reality was very very confused. And since, and I was very drunk and since I couldn't get him like to react the right way or whatever, I started getting upset. And then I started projecting my father onto him because I'm like, I'm like, you, how can you be so helpless? And then I started getting like really angry at him and getting in his face and like, like, like yelling some crazy things. And, uh, and he started like running away from me and I chased him for blocks. Whoa. I'm serious. I'm not like making this shit up. This was years and years ago, but what was that night? I don't remember, but it was a really weird night, and and it was really dangerous. I mean, I could have died in any number of ways that night. Yeah, but um, so in that situation, we could say you definitely played out an issue from your childhood in relation to your father, in how he can act incompetent, and he's he's he, right. He he doesn't do well with money, and he's yeah. The helplessness was the and 
and it, and it was again in this case where it started with me quote unquote oh I, I want to help this person right and it ended with me like probably damaging them even worse right psychologically so, so the idea is possibly you were projecting a helpless part onto him that you've actually internalized from your father right and you were trying to rid yourself of that by attacking right. it in someone else. And because and, and, you were so intoxicated, you right. couldn't modulate your behavior in a way that would be more functional. Right. Yeah. But in general, I would say you're definitely not like Patrick Bateman. Not normally, no. I mean, I would say you're almost the direct opposite. However, might it be possible that you have impulses, like anyone else, of anger that don't get expressed that a movie like this might feel like you're able to express through the character of Patrick Bateman. I, I mean, I definitely experienced that with some movies, like Falling Down. Remember Falling Down? Oh, man, I can oh, I can so relate to Michael Douglas. Yeah. Oh, God damn it. Certainly stuff like Die Hard or... I mean, there's a billion movies where you're... where I can't but relate the, the, so much. Right, right. So anger. Right. The so, Hulk. Yeah. So with Patrick Bateman, there's a part of your superego super ego that is saying... You can't consciously relate to this character, but you will be attracted to it because it will provide you with a catharsis of violence that you need to have met for you. Could be. In other movies, I'll allow you to consciously relate and identify with this person because it's socially acceptable to be to identify with the falling down character because he's not a sadistic, misogynistic, capitalistic, horrible person, right? He's just a guy trying to go home from work and everything's right. getting in his way. Uh, whereas a Patrick Bateman character, you know, and everyone knows, you're not supposed to like or identify with this character. You're supposed to dislike him. But one might be attracted to his behavior as a way of trying to get a lot of these impulses out through, right. through a... A socially acceptable way, like laughing at a movie, laughing at the moments that he slashes people, that sort of thing. That's true. Okay, another example, like Lestat from Interview with a Vampire. Oh, yeah. So, certainly an aspirational type of thing, even though he's this murderous vampire. Yeah, I mean, it explains but, a lot of movies and a lot of violence in movies. I, but I, I still feel like I come back to a block with Bateman because... It's like Norman Bates from Psycho in a way. It's hard for me to have that same feeling with with someone like that because I, I guess I see them more as like a victim. It sounds crazy, but it's almost I, clearly if someone kills someone, like the victim is the dead person. But when you're seeing the movie and a lot of these characters are so messed up, they're so like not normal that I can't help but feel sadness for that, right? Yeah. And, and it's really hard. It's complicated. Right. You have lots of feelings. Right. And it's really hard in that moment for me to see past that part. Now, you're right that subconsciously that may be there, but consciously when I'm watching American Psycho, I mostly feel the sadness and the hilariousness or the absurdity, I guess, of the whole thing. Right. The parts that I did aspirationally see, where like you were mentioning, like, oh, that's really cool. He's got a really nice shower. And look at all those fancy scrubs he uses and stuff. And uh, um, that does look like a nice floor on his apartment. He, and <laughs> yeah, he's unabashedly narcissistic about the way he looks and his things. Right. It's like this ultra uh, self-conscious, superficial right. person. And it allows us to have permission to be in that direction right. when we see and the the funny thing is is when that movie came out in 2000 or 2001 
I remember just thinking, whoa, he is over the top with those facial creams and the working out and the stretching and the yoga. And today, it's not so different anymore. When I watched it last night, I was I had a different reaction to it, to Patrick Bateman and his regimen. Because you're in the middle of one of your regiments. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, actually, I did have a facial the other day. <laughs> because I thought, actually, those are kind of normal behaviors today yeah whereas back in 2000 metro was not really done in 2000 yeah (laughs) i mean i think we're definitely more decadent now you know the amount of spas and and the facials and the waxing and the you know what i say there i say massages as we become more wealthy we definitely pamper ourselves more i Uh, mean can you imagine our parents going to a spa and getting massages and getting facials (laughs) i just can't imagine that you know, I think I think I know where the block comes from. Me, I have a, a a visceral, adverse hatred reaction to any situation that depicts abuse of the weak, and I think it comes from growing up in, in Bogota, in Colombia, when I did in that time frame, as well as probably a little bit of my own personal, like family history or whatever. It's like I just feel like anytime I watch a movie. Any, no matter what the movie is, if it's so, if if there is a bully or an abusive situation, I I cannot get that. I cannot even relate or sympathize at all, right? But so so American Psycho is a very interesting amalgamation of things for me because in the moments when he is bullying, I lose any ability to empathize. Like when he's killing the homeless man, or when he's. Uh, killing the cat or, or any of these like obvious bully moments, right? But when he is being ridiculous with his creams or his little card things, I find all those moments either hilarious or in some cases somewhat uh, desirable in like, oh, I want money. I want limousines. I want these kind of things. Right. right. And then certainly there's some killing moments that are hilarious because he's naked with tennis shoes and a chainsaw and he is uh, wearing a plastic overcoat while he's listening to Hugh Lewis and swinging a big-ass fire axe, right? So there's these moments that are, like, um, so absurd that are Right. So I I would contend that packaged in it... Because imagine the movie without the 80s, without the absurdities, without some of the humor. Imagine a movie like that. It would be terrible, right? right? So I contend that when you package a cathartic murderous person right. within a lot of entertainment and gloss, then it is the perfect combination for people because they have an excuse right. to watch what they wish to do upon other people, but at the same time can say the things that you're saying, which is, well, I'm only liking it because it's absurd. Well, I'm only liking <laughs> it because it was about the 80s. Well, I'm only liking it because it's just silly. Well, because we, be. we couldn't accept just watching a straight up horrible, realistic movie about someone killing other people and bullying them, you know? Because, well, because we, we have a heart and like, we do don't... Do you remember Irreversible? Yeah. That's oh. a hard movie to watch, right? Oh. But so using your, your theory, you could say, well, there's maybe part of us that wants those moments. Yeah. I th- wants to bash the skull in. I think it's true. But I think that's true only in the sense that those capacities exist within the human brain. Right. Um, I think they're pretty deeply buried for most of us. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they are. I mean, most people don't do those things. I'll tell you what. I wa- have you seen Sen- uh, Human Centipede? No, I haven't. Okay. So I watched The Human Centipede and I I, I Do you think I would it. like that movie? 
I think it's enjoyable if you understand that it's ridiculous. I really enjoyed Human Centipede because it's so over the top and and ridiculous and, and and funny in a way. It's it's. I mean, I would probably like watching it with you or other people because we could laugh. But just by myself, I don't imagine that I would like it. But I'll tell you what, I I tried to watch Human Centipede too, and in years past, I would have been able to watch it. I had to stop because I had that problem with it. It's it's in black and white. The premise is that it's a dude that watched Human Centipede one over and over obsessively and is already psychotic anyway it starts killing but it was not glamorous at all and it was very like the murderer himself and the murderers and the way it's presented it was very almost like like you're watching it through a camera in a garage in fact they have that so so this is along the lines of my theory that if you package it within entertainment trappings right it uh, gives it allows you to have all that cathartic satisfaction right. while being able to allow your conscious mind to think you like it for another reason could be you know which makes me think about a lot of violence in movies and 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 why we might be so attracted to it you know that could be certainly but, i mean it's violence as entertainment is very old in our culture yeah 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 all right uh let's see <laughs> if there's anything more do you have anything more um we didn't never really talked about the relationship between him and Kimball, uh-huh. the detective, okay. which is a fascinating relationship, right? Because Kimball comes in all of a sudden as as reality, as a reality wave, right? Like, hey man, I'm investigating, right? And so at first you kind of get the sense of like, oh, everything's gonna catch up to him, but you get the sense that Kimball starts almost like he rides this fine line between at first he's being just pleasant. Say, oh, I know how busy you guys can get, but I think he knows that it's full of shit, right? But then he almost starts kind of liking the glamour of being around these people. And by the end, he's like, oh, it's fine. I checked with your buddies. Every, everything checks out, right. right? So is the implication that he's trying to protect Patrick? I know. I didn't get that. I, I actually got the implication that I got was that he knows there's something not right with Patrick. Yeah, he definitely seems to become enamored with 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 him yeah and i think again it's just this comment on how everyone in the 80s was desirous of the yuppie lifestyle um one of the things that was in the article and i should provide the the uh the title it's called examining the personality of patrick bateman of american psycho written by christopher schaefer of walden university and one of the uh things that he brought up that i thought was actually interesting was that Patrick Bateman is is actualizing. So there's a humanistic psychology idea of self-actualization where as you have all of your needs met on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the final need that you pursue is the need for self-actualization. And it took me probably 15 years to figure out what self-actualization means. It literally means the actualization of the self, which is a big duh, but somehow it took me 15 years to figure that out. So, which is, it's sort of a interesting philosophy in that we are not ourselves at times when we're stressed and that as we become more stable in our life, we actually have the freedom to actualize our self as if there was some self in us, innate thing. It's an innate thing that we can work towards actualizing and, and making real. So, for instance, with someone, they might want to become more authentic or they might want to become more 
artistic or they might want to become more assertive or something. Well, the the dark side to this is that if inside of you yourself is a horrible, murderous, narcissistic, selfish person, then as all of your needs are being met, you can actualize that self. And so what this writer was saying was that because Bateman had all of his needs met, he had all the he had, you know, his home, his the money, he had all the friends, he had a stable job, he had his health, he had the perfect body, he had everything he needed, he had fun in his life. The last thing on the list was to actualize the self, and in order to do that, he needed to start killing people and he needed to start really abusing people. And I just thought that was an interesting idea. Well, it's kind of like the Roman emperors or something to say, hey, here's this emperor. Money is irrelevant. Like, the idea of money is pointless because anything they want, anything, can, can be got. And they, they have control over all the known world. They can kill people at will. So what is left for them to desire? And then you have all those horror stories of what they would do, right? Yeah. These crazy orgies or crazy massacres or crazy over-the-top things because they just couldn't do more. They're like, now what? Yeah, yeah. Right? But then... I wonder, and maybe it is, maybe it's that because their inner self was messed up, right? Because you have all these modern billionaires and some are wacky, but some are trying to do good and some are trying to do, you know, so it's not, it doesn't seem like just because you attain a certain level of success, you then become a psychopath. <laughs> well, no, the idea is, is that you become right. who you are. And, and it happened that Patrick Bateman was a psychopath. <laughs> right, which which seems to to be in line with observation of, of, of people. You know, you find that some people become very mean to people, whereas most people become perhaps more philanthropic or... It's almost like a different interpretation of the old adage of like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? But maybe it's that the more likely folks to earn the power might be psychopaths. <laughs> well, and another theory is that as you become more stable and have more power, you are able to enact the things that you always wanted to enact. And if you always wanted to become murderous of people, then that's what ends up happening. Yeah, and, and then that's what I mean is like, because you look at throughout history and, and yeah, I, I think maybe on balance more rulers and more powerful people did evil things, quote unquote, but maybe it's because it took to be an evil person to start with to get to those positions of power more often than not. Right. Because and, in order know. to be, in order to do what they wanted to do, they had to have power. Whereas if yeah. you're a loving, giving person, yeah. you don't necessarily need a bunch of power right. in order to give to those around you. And you, ha you sometimes, especially it used to be, but it's still quite a bit the case that you had to be willing to step over anyone to get to those positions of power. Yeah. And even today, I mean, like, why is it that so many politicians end up having these scandals of, like, they did terrible things, right? Yeah. And then you, uh, a lot of the uh, Enron, all the Wall Street stuff. I'm reading The Wolf of Wall Street right now, The Wolf of Wall Street. And it's that kind of crazy over the top debauchery and lack of care for humanity. Right. <laughs> so is it that those people were born that way or had a childhood that produced that kind of behavior and those kinds of impulses? Or does the power make them that way? Or does our society reward people for that? You know, for the Enron people, if 
they had a woman, an old woman with her retirement fund standing in front of them crying as they took money out of her hands and she slowly went into poverty before their eyes, they probably wouldn't have done it. But when you're just dealing with numbers on a screen, you don't have the empathy that you would normally, unless you really force yourself to have that empathy. It's the same thing. It's, It's just always bizarre. And I know everyone talks, or many people have talked about it before, but right now, there are horrible things happening to humans around the planet. Right. And yet, if one tiny thing happens to someone in your town, everyone flips out. Right. Why is that? I mean, it could be argued that you believe it might happen to you because it's closer to home, but I actually think it's because we just don't, we can't relate. They're too, they're too distant, and it doesn't feel real to us. Hurricane, right? The right in the Philippines. Yes. Like how many tens of? Th- I mean, how many people died? Like ridiculous amounts and homeless, like crazy. It's still a problem. It's yeah, still it's, a, it's still a, it's still a massive, massive problem. Disaster. How many Americans are actually thinking about this? Yeah. I mean, there are Americans. I know people that are thinking about it. But it happens even within this country, right? Like you'll have. Then we have some massive disaster. I avoid the news be- because it's depressing to me. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it, yeah. Anyway, I don't know how we got on the topic. But. Well, we got onto it because like we don't see it out of sight, out of mind, and it's not as relatable. Right. Whereas if your point with Wall Street is like if you see the damage right. happening in real time in front of your eyes. Yeah. I mean, for most people, if someone trips and falls and hurts themselves, no matter who they are, they'll feel compassion and, re- part, yeah. and reach out and say, oh my God, are you okay? And yet you have these people that will press a button and, and kill thousands of people. But, but and then you have stuff like this. Like I went to see a movie with some friends and there's this guy I know, he's not like a close friend, but he's a very unfeeling person. And I was talking about how Paul Walker, the Fast and the Furious guy died. And he hadn't heard, but I'm like, yeah, he died. And his response was, uh, oh, good, so they don't make any more of those crappy movies. I thought, I was like, I didn't say anything, but I was like, that's an example of what you're talking This is a human being that died in a fire, like viciously died. Like terrible, horrible. And it's been reduced to like this offhanded, because it's so distant, it feels so unreal. Yeah. He's this guy on a TV screen, on a movie screen. Yeah. The thing that that reminds me of is 9-11, the day that... It happened. 9-11 was a weekday, right? Do you remember what day of the week it was? It was, it was the middle of the week. It was like and, Tuesday, I think. And I was working as a therapist. And one of the clients that I worked with later that day was a family that had a number of kids in it. And they were all abuzz about 9-11 because it was definitely in the air, right? And they were saying, oh, man, I hope a plane hits my school because I don't want to go to school tomorrow. And Jeez. I was I was so devastated by right. 9-11 and the news reports. And I was in such a low, traumatized, literally, place that when they said that, I I just, I could, I was stunned. And right. I, I can still remember it. And it was, right. what, 12 years ago. And that was when I realized that depending on how old you are, you're empathy and your moral development might be at a at a lesser stage. Yep. You just don't have those brain pathways or the maturity or whatever you want to call it that allows you to feel the way that adults feel. And I feel like even as I get older, 43 right now, I have even more empathy than I did 10, 20 years ago. Sure. Actually, a, a listener wrote in about this very topic 
and said that there was some research showing that actual circuitry in the brain that is associated with morality is not fully developed until like 25. The same pathway that's probably involved in the prefrontal cortex, if not that very one. And so when you have 12-year-olds talking about wanting planes to run into their school, they just don't have that ability to empathize with the people that have died or the people that would die in the same way an adult would. Yeah, so maybe some sense. people don't have that as developed as other people do. But then you even get to this point of like adults, fully grown, 50-year-olds, whatever. And you see a lot of the comments that came out with the Trayvon thing. And then, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, he had the right because the guns, because the things. It was very politicized, right? But what I don't – what I, I just can't wrap my head around is like at the end of the day, no matter what, like a 17-year-old kid is dead. He died. Like he is dead. He's not coming back. Yeah. But these adults couldn't get past the part of – Oh, stand your ground law or this or the other, whatever statement, to have a little empathy for that fact. So, well, he's a thug. It's like, you, even if even if he's quote-unquote a thug, whatever that means, right? Like, he's a 17-year-old. How many 17-year-old kids don't fall under the category of thuggish? Well, <laughs> I know that that is a valid criticism of people's reactions to news stories like that, but... I think that these kinds of stories, I mean, how many murders happened on that particular day in the world? I mean, we're talking hundreds, you know, if not thousands, right? Well, why was that one so interesting to people? And I think that's the, really the point is... Well, but if you're going to make it, if you're going to make a statement about it, right? Because you're, they're not making statements about the other murders, right? Right. But if, if they were, and let's say like of all these 17,000 kids that died yesterday, I don't give a shit about any of them. Okay, that's terrible, right? Right. Uh, the one that, that if you pick to talk about one, right, and your only position is, well, like gun laws or gun rights or whatever it is, right, and you don't leave even a little iota of room for, oh, shit, a 17-year-old kid is dead. Right. right? It's it, it's that kind of like, I mean, some people thing did, that I don't understand. Some people did say that, you know. Oh, many people did. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say the majority did, but there were a lot of people that didn't. Well, I think it's because of the the way an event like this is a lightning rod yeah. for lots of unexpressed issues that people have based on the social stage, you know, the, yeah. the racism in our country, the anti-racism in our country, the anti-South in our country, the yeah. anti-gun in our country, the pro-gun in our country. The anti-crime, the anti-hoodies, <laughs> right. the the pro-vigilante. The, I mean, there's so many charged issues that come down to one event that it's just inevitable that it's going to be a huge news uh, yeah. ish, uh, event. It know? just as you were talking about adults reaching a certain point and stuff. Like I just envision that. It, I, I wish we could all get to the point where we can talk about things like okay. What a tragedy. This was such a senseless tragedy. Let's start with that, right? Like how awful. Feels so bad for these families. Blah, 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 blah. And then then fine, dive a little deeper. Oh, here's the issues. That, you know, that subtlety is non-existent in so many places in our society. Because it doesn't sell. Yeah. It's not something in the news that sells, and you need things that sell. Empathy doesn't sell. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. Please take care of yourself. Watch American Psycho if you have unmet id needs because you're worth it. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> well, by the way, if you if you watch American Psycho, also try reading the book, even though it's going to be very hard to get through 
a certain portion of it because it, it gets so ridiculously over the top, gory and violent and disturbing. This is not an exit. <laughs> Do you have a song? Uh, American Psycho. Oh. Baby, what I need. No, no, no. What's the what's the one that I the, the New Order one they play is? I feel so extraordinary, right? It's the uh, is that bizarre love triangle? Or uh, I never know the names of New Order songs. Su su studio. You know, I actually never knew that the Whitney Houston song was about loving yourself until I, I saw American Psycho. Yeah, I don't think I knew that either. <laughs> but the greatest love of all was you know. The greatest. I always love just assume it was like she found the something. The <laughs> greatest love of all. I just thought she she found some great. It's easy to achieve. Is that the is that the word? Is I don't that know. the word? <laughs> I, don't know. I hope it is. 